I knew that it was going to be really hard. I was crying on my husband's shoulders while we were doing the final deal docs. And afterwards, I just felt like a zombie. It's been a very out-of-body, bizarre experience. If I hadn't been passionate about it or I felt like it wasn't really a meaningful business, it might have been different. But it was everything. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a Colorado entrepreneur turned her frustrations with lacking nursing products into a cheeky brand took on the biggest consumer packaging goods companies in the world, and turned it into a multi-million dollar exit. And before we get to today's episode, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you, the listeners. Your support has been overwhelming, and I can't believe all the positive feedback that I'm getting. Please keep it coming. Love hearing what you want to hear, what you don't want to hear, uh, any ideas for guests. As always, you can send those ideas to podcast at wildstory.com, and I read each and every one of those. So I have to admit, I never really think about breastfeeding. I have three kids, and they're all breastfed. And if I'm being honest, I never really thought much about breastfeeding then. But you know who does care deeply about breastfeeding? Women. And that's pretty much the point of today's episode. So many things in this world that concern women are decided by men. We won't belabor that point on today's show. But even today, there are so many men who are making decisions about all sorts of products that we use in everyday life. Things like moisturizer, soap, shampoo. And until very recently, breastfeeding pads and nursing products. And what do they know about what makes a good nursing pad? Probably nothing, right? And for millions of mothers, nursing their babies is a full-time job, and one that has some unpleasant realities. At any given time, a woman's breast milk might leak for a myriad of reasons, soaking her chest and shirt. It can not only be embarrassing, it's also inconvenient to walk around the office with a soaked blouse. Many, many years ago, breast pads were invented to help with this issue, but according to today's guest, Carrie Gilmartin, they were all terrible. But no one was doing anything until Carrie conceived bamboobies. At first, Carrie got angry. She felt overlooked and ignored. Then she took action. Combining this very clear problem of insufficient breastfeeding pads with an ingenious use of bamboo textiles and riding the wave of the natural foods and products movement, Carrie went on to create a company that recently sold for millions of dollars. Bamboobies. And this is her story. So Carrie, we're here to talk about your life and story as, a, as an entrepreneur and your evolution from startup to exit. But before we do that, uh, I want to go back to the beginning. Were you always entrepreneurial as a child? Tell me a little bit about your childhood. Thanks. You know, I, I would feel like I was brought up um, with the perfect family. I landed in just the right spot for me. Um, my parents were entrepreneurial, both of them at different times. And I would say I was, before I knew what entrepreneurship was or was interested in business itself, I was always doing different things. Um, my mom was the one who knew about everything, 
outside of school that was going on. We called her the internet before there was an internet. She'd get us involved in mock jury trials and triathlons and um, international travel. So I was really exposed to a lot of things and encouraged to be different. So I think that was probably the beginning. So like, where did you grow up? Like what, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Oh, in Denver, actually. Uh, and a local? I, I didn't think there was such a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. And so you mentioned your parents were entrepreneurs. What, what did they do? Um, my dad had his own business in the insurance industry, um, doing mostly commercial insurance. And he also had an insurance related software business. And then, um, my mom had a variety of businesses. She also was born and raised in Denver and had a tour company when, again, before the internet would help people book travel in undiscovered parts of Colorado. She had a greeting card company and then she became a real estate agent and ran her own business that way. So it sort of evolved over time. Quite the role models. And so when you were young, I mean, what, what did you sense about being an entrepreneur? I mean, what was attractive about it, at least the way you saw your parents approaching it? You know, what I think about are the negative things, actually. Like, I remember my dad coming home and announcing that he'd lost a big account or that there was something really bad that happened that I didn't maybe even understand the meaning of. Um, and I remember him missing vacations that we had planned because such and such a client would have some last minute thing happen. And when you're, um, when you're the entrepreneur, you know, the buck stops with you. And I remember just seeing the responsibility weigh really heavily on him and him having to make tough choices like that. So uh, you kind of put me in a spot here. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a perfect answer. That's, that's really interesting. And, and we're going to get to why that might be relevant in, in a little bit. But so you're a child, you have these two entrepreneurial parents, you're in Denver, connecting the dots while you're going on international travel, your mom's a travel agent, you're doing all these really cool things. Did you have like a first business? Did you start being entrepreneurial in college? When did that start for you? I feel like before I knew what it was, and before I knew that I wanted to do that, or maybe in spite of maybe not wanting to do it, I was always just such a busybody. Like in college, I read all the posters, you know, like at the student union where there are the, all the posters hanging in, um, on the poles as you're walking through campus. I went to Georgetown um, in DC and I was lucky enough to really have a lot to get involved in. I had a work study job and two internships and I was one of four people on the student council for my class and I had a lot of fun and, you know, graduated on time. So I was always just really busy. I, there wasn't anything I would, didn't want to do. I had a hard time saying no to things. I was just so curious always. And I just followed my passions all the time, just always squeezed in another thing. So I think that was a large part of what led me down this path in, in the longer term. And where did you end up going to school? Georgetown. Okay. So all the way out East. Yeah. I was attracted to basically get out of Colorado. Like you wouldn't think growing up here, you would want to, but you don't realize what you've got till you're gone. And I wanted to see the bigger world. I'd already traveled quite a bit internationally and lived abroad for a couple summers and was interested in anything international um, and wanted to study business. And at Georgetown, you had to apply to a specific school. So, you know, you don't all enter and then declare a major. I had to apply to the business school. So I was learning, you know, accounting 101 my freshman year. So I was getting schooled in all things business and on the side, anything international or having to do with politics, just because I'd landed in such a big, um, vibrant international city. 
And if I recall from uh, previous conversations, you didn't really go into politics. You kind of got involved in some startups, right? Yeah, I, I kept that at a distance after I learned a little bit about it. I just wasn't really interested in it. And um, I had some mentors from early years. Like I said, one of my um, one of my internships my last year was with a small group that um, was technically an NGO, but operated as a pretty strict venture investor that um, invested in entrepreneurial businesses that had an environmental benefit. So this was probably before people called things, you know, use the term triple bottom line or anything like that. They were trying to make change um, in Latin America and Asia Pacific regions by investing in small entrepreneurial businesses that had um, an eco impact of one or another. Things like ecotourism, small CPG type of companies, mini hydro, wind, solar, all different verticals, but in those distant markets, it was a fascinating introduction to me for how business could actually create positive change. And I think after that internship, I was literally hooked. I was really interested in renewables, but um, learning what my mentor and the guy who was running the organization at the time um, called the BMW effect. You know, if one person um, suddenly has a BMW in their driveway, their next door neighbors are all wondering how he got it. And if he got it running, let's say, a micro hydro project on his family's land up in the mountains, they might do the same thing. So um, that multiplier effect on top of um, investing in what we, you know, might now call impact investing really can be a powerful agent for change. And that always just kind of was something I was interested in and wanted to come back to back and forth and back and forth through different things in my career. Well, and and that's super interesting. I mean, are there any other examples where you were able to identify that business was really an agent to make positive change and not the the tool itself. We had a guest on uh, Jeff Hoffman from Priceline.com and he loves to say entrepreneurship isn't the purpose, it's just the tool. And I believe that's what I just heard from you in that in that example. And so were there any other times where you just saw, hey, like business can be such a powerful change agent that's beyond just, you know, transactional dollars and cents? I guess I had a couple of jobs right outside of college. And the other one I had was at the Nature Conservancy. So the opposite of this small nonprofit I was telling you about, one of the biggest uh, NGOs in the environmental space in the world. And they were partnering with big, bad, ugly corporations like oil and gas and pulp and paper, big polluters, to try to um, leverage their size for change. So even if they could make a very small change, for example, you probably read about Google making small changes in recycling their servers um, and in upstream demands of the server manufacturers. When a huge company decides to make a small change, it can even be bigger. So that was a good complimentary um, introduction to business as a change maker for me too. Wow. And so you're, you're bouncing around this nonprofit world. Was that the mission that you were on at the time? Were you really convinced like, hey, I'm going to stay within this you know, NGO space and I'm going to affect change through these organizations? Was that the plan? No, I think that actually felt limiting. I thought that that would be one of many rules I would probably break. I didn't think it had to only be nonprofits that did that. I believed, I have no idea where I got it, but it was probably that first organization I was lucky enough to work with 
Um, I think that I believed right out of the gate that a regular old-fashioned C-Corp could make a difference and that all should. So that's why I went back to business school. I wound up going to UVA down in Charlottesville, and it was really demanding, profit-focused um, general management program. And so the answer, when asked in any strategy or otherwise class um, to the question, what's the purpose of business? You know, maximizing value for shareholders. <laughs> I felt like a bit of a misfit there because that wouldn't have been my natural answer and I probably just kept my mouth shut. But um, it was interesting to be around people who felt differently. I was telling some a friend of mine recently who's trying to rope me into a wind energy investment um, that I feel like I have a chip on my shoulder from that experience at UVA, that very traditional experience of what's the purpose of business. I've got a chip on my shoulder that I'm going to fill in with gold. Things have really changed. And people now are saying investments and things like wind are too sexy and there's no way to make money in them. And, you know, I graduated in 2000. So 18 years ago, wasn't even beginning to be jokingly called sexy to invest in wind. It's funny. But <laughs> how things change, right? And the yeah, thank God. I don't need to be the only one doing it or one of 10. <laughs> so you go to UVA and you're a little bit of a misfit. You're like, look, I believe there's something more than just returning shareholder profits. And so then what happens? Well, so the summer in between my two years, um, it was 1999 and the internet was exploding for the first time. And I wasn't really attracted to it. I still was trying to listen to my gut and um, went out to San Francisco trying to drum up an internship in renewable energy and met with all kinds of people, um, probably all 10 people in the industry at the time. And there was an investor that had um, a stake in a small wind energy or wind turbine manufacturer, and he wanted to set up a wind energy installation and maintenance company in Alaska, and he needed help doing it. And I mean, I don't know how to describe it to you, but that sounded like the best summer internship imaginable. So everybody thought I was crazy. Everybody was going to their internships at Bain and McKinsey and Boring Banks. And a couple people were doing things and having to do with <laughs> dot-com startups and stuff. And I went up to a little town north of the Arctic Circle called Kotzebue. That is a native village and mostly still non-white native very small town for those summer months and worked on building out a model and relationships to get this installation and maintenance company off the ground. And it was very fun. Had lots of nightmares about bears. If I could go to sleep, the sun never went down and there was endless work to be done. So it was really fun, busy summer full of exploring and learning. It was one of the best things I've ever done. It wasn't anything I wanted to do forever. So when I went to go back to school in the fall, things fell apart a little bit. Um, and I would say that was my first entrepreneurial, I guess, taste of entrepreneurship. It wound up being that things didn't move forward and it was because of cultural reasons. The natives in Alaska really don't like lower 48 or interference and they didn't like having this investor and I come up with these ideas. And um, basically I pulled together investment capital from Anchorage. And the first big customer that was um, a large co-op, meaning multiple local co-ops, that would be the first customer. Things were seeming to come together, but 
when I took off, they said, uh, thanks for the ideas and all the work. We're going to do it ourselves. So we kind of got pushed out of the deal, but it's fine. I wanted to come back to school and back to reality. So but it was a great first taste. <laughs> so you have your taste. You're back in school. Uh, does, it, does anything of, of note happen uh, until you graduate or you, you finish school and, and then what happens? Yeah, I think I was preaching to an entrepreneurship club about how amazing, like just giving it a go instead of going for a boring job at the career center could be. And there was a kid in the audience who um, was a 20-year-old um, undergrad engineering school dropout. And he had an idea for a software business and pitched it to me after my talk. And I was like, kind of, you know, thanks, kid, but uh, software is not my thing. I don't know anything about it, but I'm happy to kind of give you advice on the side. But over the months, I got sucked in and wound up helping him raise money and um, sort of co-founding this software business when I graduated. So when all my friends were um, headed off to real jobs and partying before those started, I was on the phone with lawyers. I remember the morning after graduation, just hitting the ground running. So I spent, instead of playing golf, I spent my last semester starting the business and then kicked it off right after graduation. <laughs> no rest for the weary. And what, what was the name of that business and what did it do? And uh, where's what happened? Um, it was, it, it, it's not a big success story, so you probably won't be able to read about it, but it was called XI Software. And it was some collaboration software. So it was middleware from Microsoft Office. And it still would work better today than Google Docs. It was just a genius uh, architecture. And I think the kid at the time, I think he turned 21 in the first year of business, um, was still continuing to kind of push his vision forward. Um, maybe three years ago when I spoke to him last. But the quick and the long was that we got things off the ground, um, got first financing from an investor in Washington, D.C., and got things started there, got an office, started making key hires, um, raised another round of financing with a couple of other um, funds. And then um, we were, I think we were 34 employees. Um, we had a working prototype finished and we used it to raise an A round of $10 million. And we uh, had all the money except one funds in escrow on September 1st. I think you can guess where this story is going. The one firm said that they weren't going to be able to get it in for another week or so. We said, all right, let's put it off till September 10th. They said, sounds great. We re-ran all the docs. Everybody signed everything. We were good to go, but their money wasn't in escrow in the morning on the 10th. So when it went through in the afternoon, we said that we could go back and change all the dates to the next morning. And you know what happened the next morning. So everything was off. People were frantic for more important things than their businesses for many weeks after that. We tried to pivot. We um, I left this out, but we had to slim down our team from probably 34 to 4. Um, it was me and engineers and the founder, and we pivoted, made a new kind of software, really like fought some uphill battles. I felt like being stubborn about making something out of this seeming disaster was important to me. And I tried and like Sisefian efforts failed um, time and time again and wound up walking from the business when our first round investor went to jail for 
commingling funds among the different um, funds he had raised. So, bet you didn't know that story about me yet, did you? <laughs> no, and so that is a crash course in uh, uh-huh. in uh, having a business and and facing adversity and things that don't go well. And so, I mean, I'm listening to that, and if that were me, I'm feeling pretty beaten. I'm like. I don't know if I can do this. Like, what? Why am I even doing this? Is there even if like, can I even be an entrepreneur? But that's me. That's me. What are you feeling? I definitely, after a while, became self-aware enough to see that I needed uh, change and needed to give up on it. I was bummed for a couple of reasons. Number one, I had never been that passionate about software. I had done it because everybody was doing it, and I was. Um, disappointed in myself for not listening to my instincts and not having that alignment of passion um, with my business, I felt like I could really feel that. And it wasn't all my fault. I didn't, you know, create all the problems the business had, but I noticed that and I spent some soul searching time and wound up moving back here to Colorado. So all that time I was living in the DC area still I definitely felt like I came back to Colorado with my tail between my legs. I thought I was so smart and I was going to create this great business. And I didn't, you know, failure was a terrible lesson. Um, I see it in hindsight now as having been, you know, a great learning experience and all part of the process. And I had nothing to lose anyway. I didn't have a mortgage and kids or anything. It was a perfect time to do it, but it still felt terrible. So when I came back to Colorado, I was fooling around with a couple small companies that were trying to raise capital. And um, I had done a lot of that. They they needed help with a variety of, I guess, just small business challenges and was able to help people through my own network from growing up and things. And then my family. So my mother, I told you, was involved in real estate. And my brother also was at the time. They were doing real estate and, you know, things were booming. And they said, you know, we work half as hard as you do and we make four times as much money. Come over to the dark side, basically. And I said, no, I want to do something that I'm passionate about. I'm sick of just doing things for money. I wound up kind of helping them with their businesses. And I realized through the process that I was helping actual people. This sounds really cold hearted, um, but I'd always had such strong environmental protection convictions that I uh, didn't really feel like I Um, was interested in a social mission business because I just wasn't like I was really drawn to environmental causes. But when I started helping people with what was the biggest investment of their lives and their actual home where they lived and raised their families every day, I really began to enjoy it. So long story short, I sort of tiptoed into it and then really just was so busy and having fun um, and doing something that seemed that was frankly pretty easy. I got to use um, negotiation skills and um, people skills and just help people with something and then move on to the next thing. I just, just was having a lot of fun with it. Through the process of moving back here to Colorado, I met my husband, probably um, worked in real estate and then started my own firm with my brother and then um, started having kids and started working a little bit less. And that's where the next story starts, I guess. You get married, you're, you're on this kind of traditional family path, you have kids and 
what happens? What's the, I'm, I'm assuming this is where we enter the bamboobies chapter of the story. And like, so what happens? Like you're just sitting around and you're, you know, you're, no, I was a little bored. Leaking all over your shirt. I mean, like what's the inspiration? Yeah, there was a lot of that. <laughs> I had my first child who's now 11. Um, but maybe a year after that, I was pregnant with my daughter and had my second baby and I couldn't believe how leaky I was. So I was breastfeeding and was just, it just happens to, frankly, what we understand is a lot of people, but you can um, leak breast milk when you're either nursing on the other side or you hear a baby cry in Target or you're at work and you think about your baby and how cute they are. It's a crazy mind body thing. Um, it isn't just a physical suction, sort of like a bottle situation. So you can wind up being pretty leaky and what I found, I was just plain frustrated with the other products on the market. There were um, products from big pump companies, which are the the breast pump companies in the baby space are the ones who make nursing pads or did in the past. And they just made these absolutely mediocre products. They were either disposable products that sort of sounded and felt like a diaper in your bra, or they made washables, which were made of just cotton flannel. And you know how flannel pills, so it was not very soft. Um, you've heard cotton kills, meaning when it gets wet, it feels terribly uncomfortable. Um, and you could actually leak through them onto your shirt still. They're just miserable products. I envisioned some old guys running the company that just really didn't get it. They didn't get the marketing. They didn't get how bad these products were and how dysfunctional they were. And I was incensed, really. Um, I was upset that when you're in such a vulnerable place as a new mom that the commercial products world can't take better care of you. So the breastfeeding world was different than it is today. There were fewer products. There was less attention on breastfeeding, less acceptance, particularly on breastfeeding in public or taking time out from a job, let's say, to pump during the day. Um, it was much less trendy than it is today, even though we're mammals and we've been doing it forever. It was pretty hush-hush still about 10 years ago. Like, how are you seeing this and no one else's? I mean, are you at coffee with your friends and you're all just riffing on this problem and how bad it is? Are you just getting sort of like worked up in, a, in, in your own silo and just like... There were a couple of things that kind of came together. And I think that's usually how it is. I told you about having this interest in businesses with an environmental background or benefit. And... um I had started using cloth diapers, and this is, again, nothing new in the world, but it was coming back into vogue again. Cloth diapers are made with some materials um, that are different today than they probably were in the olden days. So they've got a washable, washable fabric that's usually in three layers. One layer that's close to the skin that doesn't get cold and clammy when it's wet, of course, something that wicks. Um, a back fabric that is uh, waterproof because, of course, it should be. And then something very absorbent in the center. And I was using these products with my daughter who was, you know, zero to six months old, kind of trying to get in the groove with those and learning about the care for the products or the care for the different fabrics. It's kind of complicated. And then um, I was also, yeah, pissed off that there weren't better products, especially when you're in this time of need. Like people try to sell you all kinds of crap when you're pregnant. You don't really need anything. As you probably know, as soon as a woman has a baby, all societal attention focuses on the baby and she's forgotten about. 
thankfully earns you a few naps maybe, but you really are left hanging in the wind. It feels like from, especially just even a few years ago, even from social media support, anything, um, nobody is saying it like it is. Even some of my friends, I said, why didn't you tell me how hard breastfeeding was? Why does everybody spend so much time and energy on birthing classes when birth lasts three days and I'm supposed to breastfeed for two whole weeks? I'm never going to be able to do this. There just wasn't a lot of education around it. And it was still pretty hush-hush too. Um, things like postpartum depression weren't talked about. Um, nobody got it, so you didn't need to talk about it. That's all changed some, but there is still that shift in societal focus and even products to support people um, postpartum. So things are trending in the right direction. But at the time, I was pissed off. I had learned about some new fabrics through cloth diapering. And I was trying to take one of the very few naps I had even tried, especially after I had my second. And I just felt like there was something there and I couldn't figure out what it was. And I think I turned one side of my brain off and the other one just started firing. And I thought of the funny name Bamboobies. And it was bamboo fabric that was so amazingly soft that I discovered through cloth diapering, plus obviously the word boobies. I just jumped out of bed, told my nanny I'd be right back. I was living in the mountains at the time and drove down to our local little store to find out if I was missing something. Were there better products on the market? Um, that small local store wound up being the first one to carry the product sort of on a consignment basis and helped me get things off the ground. So it took about six months from the thinking of the name. That night around midnight, I figured out how to trademark it. It took me surprisingly long, like months, to figure out how to which fabrics to pick and how to get them sewn and what shapes to use and things like that. But I finally had some prototypes made, um, had a neighbor friend who is a graphic designer make some labels up for me, kind of put together a goofy looking first viable product and put it on shelf. And as my husband says, when I thank him for his support, I was just unstoppable. I knew that I had a great idea. I knew that I could make a much better product. I knew the market needed it. I knew I could have fun with the branding because that's one of my favorite things. There was no stopping me. I was just off. The minute I thought of it, it was done. You know, before you even started uh, describing the, the genesis of, of the business, you were kind of talking about this idea of really feeling ignored and left behind as a consumer in the, the post-birth products. And, and you know, I've kind of picked up this sense throughout our conversation today that you just have this like really strong sense of right and wrong. And almost that when you feel like something's wrong, you get really angry about it. Like, where does that come from? Like, where does that like real drive to say, look, this isn't right. And I'm going to do something about it. And, and the, why it's so interesting to me is because, especially in today's climate, there's so many people calling foul and saying things are wrong, you know, no matter what your, your political affiliation or beliefs, but so few people are actually willing to do something about it. And so I think that that's really this, um, this, this unique perspective that you have that you're like, look, this is wrong. This is right. And when it's wrong, I'm going to stand up and do something about it. Where do you think that comes from? I mean, I think it goes back to your very first question, probably. I was really lucky to land in the family I did with parents that told me I could do anything, with parents that told me I deserved everything, and that probably words that are now being frowned upon because everyone's saying millennials expect to be able to do everything and um, win every race. 
but I think I was encouraged to be different and not ever told there was something I couldn't do. And then in terms of the injustice, I don't know how to explain it to you. Like I could not be held back. One thing I did to enable myself and that independence, you know, I was then, and I'm still married and had a partner who I, who's unbelievably supportive, but also somebody, you know, I checked in with basically we just stepped into it slowly. He said, okay, maybe we should like agree on a budget. Like you want to spend two or $5,000 on this? And I was like, five sounds good. Went and spent it and did the, did all the things. I kept my day job in addition to being a mother of two and then three. I think I kept my day job of doing real estate um, for the first three or four years of running Bamboobies. And that enabled me to have the like marital equality and harmony that I needed to listen to that um, inner strength and instinct that I was doing the doing something right that the world needed and these women deserved. Yeah. And that's an interesting point. I mean, is that something you recommend to other entrepreneurs when you're counseling? Like, Hey, don't give up your day job. Right. Like, cause there's, there's there's, there's a lot of different schools of thought on that. Some people are like, look, you got to burn the bridge and and, and move on or else you're never going to move forward. But you know, what I just heard from you is how important that was to, to keeping really the most important things in your life in balance while you were embarking on this crazy journey. Yeah. I think if possible, it's great. I don't think there are a lot of jobs like real estate though, (laughs) you know, you're in a lot of money and with not very much time, you have complete flexibility about when and where you are um, with the exception of being on call for your clients. And most jobs, if you're needing to show up and actually be working 40, 50 hours a week, I think that's hard. So I wouldn't give the advice to everybody because I think that would be insensitive. It's not, it wouldn't be easy for everybody like it was for me. I, I just set it up. I had one desk where I did my real estate and I had a swivel chair and I would swivel around and I had another, well, they weren't desks. Let's be honest. They were those Home Depot tables and I swiveled and that's where I made phone calls. I just dialed for dollars and called independent boutiques across the country and sent them samples and had help from other women entrepreneurs with some details like legal forms. Like if we needed a wholesale agreement, I had a friend who's like, okay, I'll send you mine. And Another friend who said, I'll send you my list of stores and the contact information for the um, people I'm selling to now. I developed a little um, group of women that were all starting breastfeeding support product companies around the same time. And you better believe it was a trend. It sounds funny now that I say it, but I think I was not the only one who was pissed off and had the talent and experience to make a difference and change things and wanted to start a business. So I started this little group. Um, it probably was up to about six or seven of us. Um, and I called it the titty committee. And we really had each other's backs in terms of doing co-marketing, um, going to trade shows together, sharing all of our victories as well as helping each other through tough times. So I had their support. I had my husband's support. I probably couldn't have made a company out of a product with a goofy name. So I had the support of my first vendors who were making a great product. And the business never would have taken off like it did if it hadn't been a kick-ass product. So all those things dovetailed, I think, to make some quick success. But I was pretty wedded to running the business sustainably with its own, you know, just being self-funding. 
So it was a slow growth, which, you know, that might not be right for everybody either, but I was determined to just spend the money that we made. And I didn't have very good margins in the beginning, as anybody who makes a physical product or food would tell you. Um, It's tough with MOQs. So we just grew pretty slowly. Um, We got some small loans from friends and family when we launched in Babies R Us, which was a big deal at the time. And then a line of credit from a bank. But otherwise, you know, after the experience I told you about earlier, I wasn't quite ready to get involved in a business with um, that required an outside investor. So we grew slowly, sustainably, took on new challenges all the time. You know, one year recently, we went from about a thousand doors in the US to over 10,000 in six months when we went into drugstores like CVS and Walgreens, um, Target, and Kroger nationally, as well as a bunch of um, natural food stores like Whole Foods and Vitamin Cottage. So there were times of crazy growth and things down the road, but in the beginning, we really, I really tried to just keep it on a slow and steady trajectory. Yeah, and you mentioned MLQs. What are those? Oh, sorry. Minimum order quantities. So as you can imagine, as your volume goes up, your price or your cogs go down and your margins can grow and your business can grow faster if it is self-funded. So in the beginning, when you've got um, high cost of goods because you um, don't have the volume yet, it's very hard to scale. So we've jumped a lot here. What year was Bamboobies founded? I guess it was like the January of 2010 is when it was. January, February of 2010. Yeah, perfect. And then so like, you know, it's 2010, you, you get a test store, you're down, you know, I assume in Boulder at some, you know, where like something like Lucky's or something like that? No, it wasn't a um, natural food store. It was a parenting like um, little independent store that sold maternity clothes and little baby like onesies and fluffy things. They carried a decent amount of breastfeeding products like pumps and things too. So yeah, I started the business with just that first product I told you about, the um, washable nursing pads. And then I also had an idea that was based on a simple shawl that I was wearing at the time, that it could be a um, nursing cover when you're out nursing in public, because the nursing covers at the time were really brightly patterned. Um, They almost look like a drapery pattern or something. Um, really brightly patterned apron style cover. And some people still use them, but they've kind of gone out of fashion in the last few years. So ours was called the chic nursing shawl. It was just a pretty shawl that you could wear all the time when you're pregnant, when you're um, not, and then you could nurse under it just because of the shape of it. Um, That product's really taken off. It's sold nationally in Target now and has all kinds of knockoffs and things like that. But it was an innovative design, um, much like the nursing pads were. And then we filled out the product line over the years to um, be about 12 different things. Some apparel, um, one of our other top selling products was an organic nipple balm um, that was 100% certified organic healing herbs and other oils that um, people just almost cry when they talk to me about how great the products were if they've used my products before and I've just met them. The nipple balm saved my life. You can't imagine. I could not have kept nursing my baby. Nobody told me how hard it was. Tell me a bunch of gross things about their absolute injuries to their nipples when they're first nursing their babies and talk about how great and healing that product was. So that's that's probably the best-selling single product to date. 
So we kind of had fun exploring other types of products that were always um, in support of new mom and breastfeeding. And also, though we didn't scream it in our packaging or anything, they also, also always had an environmental benefit. So for example, we came out with a disposable pad and it has FS certified pulp on the inside, meaning um, sustainably harvested trees are felled in order to make this pulp. The top sheet is a bamboo instead of plastic, which is eco, but also just healthier. It's um, got antimicrobial and antibacterial properties naturally, unlike a plastic. And most importantly to mom, because she doesn't really care about eco things if she's got extreme nipple pain, this substrate doesn't stick to your nipple after you've leaked. I'm getting kind of graphic here, I know, but very important for new moms. So that product's going national at Target this January too. Um, the other products in the line are really taking off. I think it's um, not just because of fun and goofy branding, but also because they're great, effective products that um, moms are spreading the word about. Um, and then the eco piece is sort of just feel good for me. I think the fact that the business has both social and environmental benefit is what drove me and made the business such a passion and success. Yeah, and it all sounds like so great and easy now, but like, what was your biggest challenge as you were building the business? And, you know, we're about to get to where you were able to ultimately build the business to a, a nice exit to set up you and your family, as well as kind of get on to the next chapter. But before we get there, what were the biggest challenges? I mean, did you ever think it wasn't going to make it? I never thought the business wasn't going to make it. Even like, as we were going through the sale process, I remember talking to my husband and he was sort of <laughs> still in shock. Um, I just can't believe this. And I kept saying to him, like, I actually can. Like, I knew from the moment I started this that there was no stopping me, that moms deserve these products. They would pay a premium for them, that when I was designing them and getting them made, that they were premium, great products for people that really deserve them. It was great how it expanded, but I will say the biggest challenge was that expansion. I told you about going from um, 1,000 to 10,000 doors in six months. That really stressed us out in terms of cash. We wound up spending a million dollars in advertising one year trying to support the growth into those new channels and not knowing how to um, drive velocities off shelf, which is how you're judged by big chains. Not knowing how to drive velocities off shelf with digital ads was my challenge and is everyone's challenge still today in the CPG world. Um, it's really hard to do. Um, and anybody who cares about, I would say, like the health of their business, cares about ROI on ad spend, and to not be able to measure it because the two are so disconnected, that feeling of wanting to throw everything at a challenge in order to succeed was overwhelming. But the idea that I wouldn't be able to measure it and figure out what worked drove me pretty crazy. So that was a challenge when we first went into Target. You know, we launched two products in 200 stores. Then we grew to full chain with those two products and added three new ones. We literally spent everything on it. And that felt really risky, frankly. I'd failed before and I didn't want to fail because I say wasn't paying attention to finances or didn't know what was going to work or was, had to commit in advance to a six-month advertising program not knowing if it was going to work or not. And all of those things were true. I had trouble managing everything from the ops and finance side to the effectiveness of the ads when the business scaled that quickly. And so you're, you're humming, 
you're scaling quickly. You're every day you're in there. It's, you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's easy because you're working your tail off. It's, it's the highs and lows of, of being an entrepreneur. And then one day you get a call and someone says, Hey, we want to buy bamboobies. Can you take me back there? What was that like? Yeah, it actually happened several times along the way. Like um, really early on, there were some big companies that came to us and said, we want you to make private label pads for us. Like at my very first trade show, they knew I was onto something with the design. And then they wanted to buy the brand because they knew I was onto something with the brand. So every year, every other year, I would get calls from companies in the industry. So strategics interested in buying the business or buying a majority or investing. I also had investors who were interested. So it wasn't out of the blue. I got one call and snap, that's what worked. It was actually a lot of work to find um, the right company who would pay the right amount with the right structure. Um, I wound up hiring bankers to help me with the process. But what really happened was I was still on fire. We were just launching direct to consumer, which was a big became a big part of our business as well as Amazon and all of those stores I was mentioning. I knew that we were going to get two or three new products in Target the next year. I knew that I was going to launch a couple products in Walmart the next year, the next year being 2018, I guess. So when these companies called, I said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm still having so much fun. We've got all this stuff happening in the future. And with the way that working with big chains works, as you know, six months in advance, if you've got a new a product going on shelf during their reset, and you don't really get credit when you go to sell a non-consumable or durable goods company like I had. I had something I would call it quasi-durable, a mix of products that don't get purchased you know, every week or every month like eggs and milk. It was more like socks or water bottles where you buy one, you might buy them in a couple different colors, you might buy another thing made by that company, but we had a very short um, time horizon or customer lifetime value. So um, selling a business on forward-looking projections isn't easy when you've got that combination of durable goods in a market where if you think about it, you've got your target market mom is in the right window for maybe three to six months. So it was a challenging business to grow and a challenging business to sell for those reasons. Um, And I knew that and I'd already talked to people who wanted to buy the business for nothing in prior years. But when I got two calls within the same 10 days from two different strategics in the industry last fall, it did turn my head and interest in sell- in somebody buying your business does turn your head. Like if you've got blinders on like a horse and you are just galloping full steam ahead and you're not thinking about your knockoffs behind you, chasing you down, you are just focused on the future. Somebody calls you and says, you know, um, I'd like to talk about your company strategy and about maybe partnering. Uh, <laughs> the alarm bells go off. And they're like, oh, they want to buy my business or they want to be a majority investor or something. So that did turn my head. And when, it ha- when that happens, it's very hard to continue running, galloping full speed ahead because you aren't looking ahead. And I knew that after I went down the path a little bit with those two and then actually a third entered a month later, that race was taking all my attention and it became very difficult to continue to chase those leads down and have these intense conversations um, and prepare all the documentation and numbers at the same time as running my quickly growing business. So that was last fall, just right about now, actually. 
and you were able to come to terms to a deal and, and exit with the company. Are you able to say what the, the terms of that deal looked like? No. Um, I did entertain a few different structures, um, minority investment, majority investment, and full purchase of the business. And I wound up taking that last option, talking to a lot of people to try and figure out what was best and came to the conclusion that not only was a full purchase outright most fitting for the company and for my personality and our family's needs, um, it also wound up being the best offer and I think the best partner. So it all came together. In eight short years, really, you've you conceived this idea, you birthed it, you nurtured it, and much like a, a child, and, and then you kind of sent it off into the world. And so was this like the exit of your dreams? Was it was everything just hunky dory uh, in no. following? No. I mean I hear that analogy a lot like, oh, you know, you're you're giving away your baby and stuff. The hard part is that it's, I don't think it is a a baby and it's not a teenager either. I just think the analogy doesn't really work. It is your passion and your purpose in life. It's a really big deal to give that up. And when somebody offers you to pay money for something that priceless, I think it turns out that they can't pay enough. And it's not because of the number I got or a number somebody else might've gotten. It's because it's a number and it's not a real thing that you can feel every day. And I don't mean to sound snotty, like I've got a whole bunch of money sitting in a variety of accounts right now. They don't affect me on an everyday basis, those digits. It really is confounding and pretty depressing to suddenly have all that taken away. Even though you were the one, you know, or I was the one to make that choice, it is like an existential loss I can hardly describe. If it were only your kid going to college or something, that'd be no big deal. And I never planned to like hand this business down to my kids or something. I always figured I would sell it. So even though I planned it, I took every step and it was a full-time job selling the business. I knew that it was going to be really hard. I was crying on my husband's shoulders while we were doing the final deal docs. And afterwards, I just felt like a zombie. It's been a very out-of-body, bizarre experience. If I hadn't been passionate about it or I felt like it wasn't really a meaningful business, it might have been different, but it was everything. You know, I heard you loud and clear that this was your purpose and this is what was driving you. And so with that gone, what what have you been doing and what are you doing next? I am trying to create space to do nothing for a little while. Um, right away when the deal closed, I'd agreed to be um, a contractor for several months. So I've done a little bit of this and that for Bamboobies still to try to help it continue as well as possible. And then there are a couple companies um, and one nonprofit that I've been helping out on the side, say over the years. And I've taken a little bit of a dive into those and will continue to do that. And then probably as a means to purposefully run from my problems, um, my husband and our three kids who are now seven, nine, and 11 are taking off in January to travel for nine months. So just kind of leaving space to explore and be with my family in a way that I haven't been because I've been distracted by this other purpose um, should be healing and fun. Where were you most excited to go on that trip? Uh, probably Africa. 
Excellent. Well, you know, I just, I went in June to Kenya with my family, so we can talk about that offline if, if you have any uh, thoughts around that. But uh, it was definitely a, a trip of a lifetime for us too. So that's, that's so, so exciting. Although I didn't, I didn't get nine months. So I'm, I'm envious there. Uh, Carrie, what would the 20 year old you say if they ran into you today? I think she'd probably say yes. Like in a celebratory way. Yes. In a being open to the next thing way. So both forward and backward looking. Oh, <laughs> I love it. And uh, last question. You, you talked a lot about brand building, about building the Bamboobies brand. I mean, what did you love most about, about that process? I mean, what did you really love about brand building a, a brand like Bamboobies? Well, I think I was um, doing something that was a little bit cutting edge that's now more mainstream, which I'm just loving seeing. Talking to consumers in a really real way about something that they hadn't been talked to in a real way before. So you may or may not um, have seen companies like Thinks, who make some menstrual underwear, people making organic tampons and pads, people making um, sex toys and lubes that are healthier for you and talking about it. Um, Breastfeeding isn't maybe considered as taboo a subject as those things, but it was, it's still on the taboo scale. And speaking frankly and honestly with moms about this being hard, but them still being able to do it. You know, in the beginning, the tagline was um, breastfeeding is beautiful, but it isn't always easy. Something as simple as that to connect with people so they get that you get it and you're a mom like them. It's not just that it's like a mom invented product. It's that you get it. Um, later, our tagline became we've got your front. And so it's just adding a little humor and being able to talk about something that's taboo and tough was really fun. And we did that socially. We did it on our packaging. We did it everywhere we were. And now when I see it out in the rest of the world, say in menstrual hygiene, not a cool uh, CPG lane to be in, I just love it. And so I think being part of that change where women are um, supporting each other, whether it's through business or otherwise, has been really fun. And that is Carrie Gilmartin and Bamboobies. Wow. You know, you never know what you're going to talk about on a podcast. All this eco nipple talk is a first for me. I know Carrie through an entrepreneur group we are in. It's called Entrepreneurs Organization, also known as EO. But to be honest, we have never really talked. We see each other at events, but I wouldn't say I know her or her story. And I'm so happy that we had the opportunity to do this interview. Sometimes you just never know that person you talk to casually every day. And one thing I love about Carrie's story is that she says it several times. What was happening was nothing new. Breastfeeding pads have been around forever but she saw how they were lacking and wasn't intimidated by the idea that the big guys must have figured this out. When there's a vision and a problem, there's a way. Another thing to take from this is that action beats inaction. Look, how many iterations around the sun and generations have we lived? This life has been lived thousands of times, with the only difference being the cultural evolution and popular culture of the day. And Carrie took experiences like her breastfeeding shawl and nipple balm and went for it. And it worked out pretty well. Bamboobies is such a great name and a great brand. And you can feel Carrie's commitment and how she's a champion for those women who have been ignored and need an advocate. 
I also so appreciate her honesty on how hard it's been to disassociate herself from her business. Now Carrie has started another fun brand, Cowgirl Capital, and I predict it won't be long before she gets involved with another great and profitable brand. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. Baby got backstory. You'll also find free story downloads and resources to help you integrate the power of story into your business. 